Well, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a blast so far. Um, I'll try my best not to dampen the atmosphere. Uh, Helen and I moved to Birmingham 23 years ago now. Uh, and I think it's fair to say we absolutely love this city, fallen in love with this city. I, I love uh, how we live in a city that is constantly developing and changing and evolving. Uh, 23 years ago, uh, the ball ring looked very different to how it looks now. Uh, 23 years ago, uh, if you said we're going to go for the day to the library, people would have given you a bit of a kind of funny look. And New Street Station was an embarrassment uh, transformed right now. Obviously, HS2 uh, may or may not happen. Uh, but I love the fact that things are constantly changing and developing and evolving in our city. And over and above all of that, I love what God is doing here. Um, uh, this uh, weekend, uh, last weekend in September, 20 years ago, it was a bit of a bumper weekend, because uh, not only was Oasis launched, and uh, I've got to say, it's a real privilege uh, to be with you here this morning. I, I gladly just sit at the back and enjoy what's happening here, um, but I get to be up front here. It's a privilege to be with you. Um, same weekend, uh, City Church was also planted, uh, and I'm going to be with them, uh, going to be interviewed in their meeting this evening. Um, back then, church planting uh, was a bit of a, a struggle in Birmingham, and I think people viewed us a little suspiciously uh, when we were just starting out uh, our churches. I love the way that the climate and the atmosphere has changed uh, over the last 23, last 20 years uh, in our city, uh, to the point that it's not now unusual for new churches to be started up. And when they do, there's a whole new generosity of spirit and celebration around them. Uh, I've had the privilege just this last nine years uh, to have had a little bit of involvement partnering with 19 new church plants uh, in and around Birmingham, and I sat down with uh, some of those leaders uh, two weeks ago. Uh, there are another 13 uh, in the pipeline for the next few years. Uh, and we said, why settle for 13? Why not go for another 30? Uh, in fact, 31 to make it 50 uh, in a 20-year period. It's like God's on the move and God's doing some great things uh, in this city. And you are very much uh, a part of it. And it's good at moments like this to pause and reflect on the goodness of God, and celebration is a good thing, uh, but it's also good to look ahead, to look forward in terms of what God has for us in the future. And on the back of all that's happened in our city and the investment you've had in that, I, for one, am excited in terms of what's to come over the next 20, and that was certainly kind of bubbling up uh, and bursting through uh, as we worshipped uh, a little while ago. Uh, I want to kick things off uh, by asking you a question. I've got a bit of a survey. Um, uh, if I was to ask you what your favourite book in the Bible is, what would you say? In fact, why don't you just turn to the person next to you and ask them that very question, just to say if, uh, if you are not quite sure what the books of the Bible are, or not sure what you would answer, just say, there are too many to choose from, or I just feel it's inappropriate to single one out. But ask your person next to you, what's your favorite book in the Bible? 
Okay, that was uh, a conversation that should have lasted no more than 10 seconds. It doesn't take long just to say a book of the Bible. So I'm going to kind of cut it short there. Uh, if this has started something you wish to continue, uh, well, I'm sure there'll be plenty of time this afternoon to get back to that conversation. But show of hands on this one. Uh, how many of you would go for the book of the Psalms? How many of the Psalms lovers? Good, good number there. Uh, how many of you would go for another book in the Old Testament? Not going to go through all of them, but all of them to go. Okay, fair few of you. How many of you would plump for one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Uh, okay, uh, how many would go for one of the letters of Paul? Any of the letters of Paul? Um, any of you go for the book of 1 Peter? <laughs> now, here's the thing. If you were to do that survey among Christians in other parts of the world primarily in persecuted contexts, many of them would turn around and say that 1 Peter is the most important book for them. Because 1 Peter, uh, which we're going to be looking at, in case you're wondering, there is a point to this, uh, 1 Peter has this assumption running all the way through it that followers of Jesus are like this cultural minority without religious protection or freedom, and they have to live out their faith in a world that is pretty hostile to them. Really, from cover to cover, from beginning to end, Peter's primary focus in 1 Peter is to try to help to equip believers to live out their faith in that kind of a world. Now, uh, I don't think we've got time today. Adrian said I can take as long as I want, but uh, I'm not going to take advantage of that. There isn't time to read the whole letter this morning. Uh, and so I just want to give you a little bit of a snapshot. We're, we're simply going to look uh, at the first two verses of chapter one. Uh, and as a special bonus, as it's your birthday, we're also going to take in a couple of verses from chapter two for good measure. And the aim in all of this is I want us to try and glean a bit of wisdom from Peter and learn from how he tried to equip the early Christians to navigate this kind of a context. Because although I think it's fair to say we've had a tremendous amount of freedom to practice our faith over the years, the more secular our nation becomes, the more people demand that we keep our faith private and to ourselves. And as a result, I think the more we can be left kind of scratching our heads and asking the question, well, how on earth do we live as followers of Jesus in a world like this? So if you like, what I want to do in the next 35 minutes or so is try and equip you to navigate this kind of cultural context for the next 20 years. Does that sound like a plan? Okay, let's dive straight in. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 1. This letter, in case you're wondering, is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him, and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. And then into chapter 2, verse 11, Peter continues, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners 
to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. Now, just so you know where we're heading with this, uh, we'll, we'll end up in a little while looking at what these verses tell us about how we're to live, but not before unpacking what they reveal about who we actually are, because it's crucial to grasp that all the things we do flows first from an understanding of who we are. If you like, right behavior flows from a right view of our identity, So before getting into behavior and loads of things to go away and do, let's start by looking at the question, who are we? Who are we? Well, two things. First thing we see in this passage is we are temporary residents and foreigners. Straight away in verse 1, we see that this letter is written to people who have been forced out of Rome and are now living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These people literally have been pushed out of their homes and have ended up scattered around foreign cities where they don't truly belong. Now, let's not brush over that. I want to just try and imagine what that would have looked like in practice. Earlier this year, Ed and I had the privilege of visiting a team from Church Central who are currently developing Christian community out in Beirut. By far the most moving experience in the week we were with them was spending an entire evening with a couple of followers of Jesus who are Syrian refugees. They showed us footage on their phone of the derelict remains of what used to be their family home back in Syria. They'd lost pretty much everything. Family, friends, their livelihood, possessions, and their rights. See, in Beirut, they weren't officially allowed to work. They couldn't access health care. They lived with the constant uncertainty of not knowing how long it would be before they were forced to move on somewhere else. And to compound matters, they were viewed with a tremendous amount of suspicion, resentment, even outright hatred by the locals. I suggest... That's a bit of a picture of what it looks like to be a temporary resident and foreigner. I want us to try and hold all of that in our mind as we reread what Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. I think Peter is making a pretty profound point here that what is true of them in a literal sense is also true of them in a spiritual sense. I think he's saying that every single one of us who's a genuine follower of Jesus should think of ourselves as a refugee, as a foreigner, as a temporary resident, 
as someone who is in exile. You see, as the Apostle Paul explains over in Philippians 3, verse 20, ultimately, we're citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we're eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. So I think if we get this, we're going to live with this constant tension, aren't we? We're, we're, we're to live with this tension of Birmingham being our home. That's assuming you live in Birmingham, you may be visiting from somewhere else, in which case this is slightly random. Just put in the place where you come from in that sentence. But uh, we're, we're to live as though Birmingham is our home, but all the time it's not our true home. On the one hand, I think we are to put down roots. We're to live as the very best citizens of Birmingham that we could possibly be. Famous passage in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29. You're probably familiar with it. It gives us a perfect example of what this looks like lived out. God, if you know the story, speaks through Jeremiah to the Israelites, to his own chosen people who are living at that point in exile in Babylon. What does he say to them? He says, settle down, build houses, plant vineyards, raise your families. But most of all, he says, pray and work for the full flourishing, the prospering of that city. In other words, love the city in which you are an exile. But all the time, we're never to forget that actually we are exiles, We just don't belong here anymore, and we're not meant to. Ultimately, we are citizens of another city, a different city, a better city, the city to come. Because of our identification with Christ, it's as though we are strangers in this world. For starters, we have a very different perspective, don't we, to the people around us. We, we know deep down there is way more to life just than this. And so as a result, we travel light because we know we're just passing through. And all the time, our values, our convictions, they're shaped by our true home, which means that the people around us will often misunderstand us. They'll treat us with suspicion, hold us at arm's length. Some of them might even hate us. If you remember, Jesus himself had taught Peter a few years previously in John 15, look, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. That the world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Listen, if we're serious about faithfully following Christ, people just won't get us. Most people will just kind of brush us off and think we're a bit strange or odd or a room full of weirdos and misfits, I think it was put earlier on. Others will take it a step further and hate us and actively oppose us. And because we think differently on some things, we'll be seen by some as a bit of a nuisance by others as people to be silenced. And that's just the way it is. That this is the reality that Christians have always lived with. And this is certainly the reality for us today. I mean, around the world right now, 
it's reported that a Christian is killed for following Jesus every six minutes. Every six minutes. The first six months of last year alone, 6,000 Christians were slaughtered in Nigeria. A further 50,000 were displaced because of their faith. Over in North Korea, there are currently 100,000 Christians. It's amazing, you never realize that. 100,000 Christians in North Korea, but just under a third of them are currently being held in concentration camps today. It's estimated that currently 214 church properties are destroyed in Asia every month. Every month. Now look, some parts of the New Testament are addressed to believers in those sorts of situations. There are parts of the New Testament written to encourage believers facing that kind of a situation. But if you read 1 Peter, actually there's no evidence that the Christians Peter was writing to were experiencing martyrdom or any kind of state-sponsored persecution at that point. Now, of course, it would come. Just a few years after this, it came with a vengeance. But at this moment, that wasn't their experience. Actually, it was more like the sporadic mistreatment, the ridicule, and the abuse that we suffer here in the UK right now. And to people like us, Peter believed it was crucial to think in terms of being temporary residents or foreigners, to nail it, to settle it, to come to terms with living as exiles, to acknowledge right here, right now, we just don't belong in this world. That's the first thing I think we need to understand about our identity. Here's the second thing. Peter also addresses us as God's chosen people. Now, every people group has its own way of doing things. Every people group has certain characteristics, don't they? Every, every people group ha- has things they are known for, things they deep down take pride in. Uh, in fact, uh, this could go horribly wrong, but I want to put it to the test uh, without wishing to fall into the trap of crass cultural stereotyping. We're not going to go there. But do we have any northerners in the room? You proudly identify as a northerner. We have a few northerners. Okay, shout out. What are you known for? What are you renowned for? What are you proud of as a northern representative in the room right now? Go on. Football. Football. Yeah, some of the, the, the greatest teams are in the north. Anything else? Yeah, straight talking, down to earth, say things as they are. Driving in snow, yeah, we could learn a thing or two about how to do that from those uh, from the north. Anything else? Okay, any Brummies in the room? Born and bred Brummies. Okay, what, what are we known for? What are we proud of? Aston Villa. Uh, like I say, that the better teams are... No, no. <laughs> Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, anything else? Anything else? A charming, accent. a charming regional accent, and we are proud of it. Round of applause for that one. Anything else? Anything else? Chocolate. Yeah, the home of Cadbury's. Anything else? 
sporty houses. There is much to be proud of. Now, the point is, every different people group has its own distinctives. And what Peter's going to show us in this letter is that if we're part of God's chosen people, then there are certain things that we're to be known for. How we live, what we do with our money, how we respond when people wrong us, the joy we have in pain. He's going to explain all of that in the chapters to come. But there's actually something way more foundational I want us to say about this. If we grasp what it means to be part of God's chosen people, then I'll suggest we're going to be the most assured, the most courageous, the most confident, the most secure people in the world. Let me illustrate why from one of my favorite Old Testament passages. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God explains to Israel why he chose them. And this is what he says, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, for you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Why? Because they're so strong, because they're so good looking, so good at football, because they're so talented. Well, let's see why. Verse 7, the Lord did not set his heart on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other nations, for you are the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you and he was keeping the oath he had sworn to your ancestors. In other words, had nothing at all to do with their strength or how impressive they looked. They were actually the most weak, the most feeble people on the planet at that time. And without wishing to offend you or kind of burst the bubble on your birthday, I think it's the same for us. I mean, what is it about us that caused God to first choose us? God's like, really? There's nothing about you that attracted me. You know, just by way of an aside, I don't think that line would work particularly well with Helen, my wife. Imagine she asked me why I first fell in love with her, and I responded by saying, well, let's face it, it's certainly nothing to do with how you look, because you're pretty ugly. Uh, uh, and it's not because of how clever you are, because, I mean, let's be honest, you're pretty stupid. Now, just for the record, a few shocked faces out there. Just for the record, I don't think that. I, I don't think that. But I will tell you this, I have developed a love for Helen that goes way beyond her beauty and her intelligence. Just trying to claw it back right there. <laughs> But that's not how it works in the first place, is it? You're normally attracted to somebody because of some characteristics that draw you to them. Now, that being said, if you're a parent, you'll know that it's different if you have children. You don't primarily love your children because of how they look or how clever they are or even how obedient they are. Uh, over and above all of that, you love them, not because they're special or deserving, but because they're yours, because they belong to you. And that's what God says to us. You are my chosen people, but you aren't chosen because you're particularly special. You're special because you are chosen. As Peter puts it in chapter 2, verse 10, once 
You had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. Now, you may or may not have clocked this, but actually that's a quote from a book in the Old Testament. Anyone know which one? Hosea. Hosea, anyone's favorite book in the Bible? <laughs> no, and for good reason. Uh, I think it's fair to say Hosea had one of the toughest assignments of anyone in the Bible. If you know the story, God told Hosea to go and marry a prostitute in order to give everyone a pretty graphic picture of God's relationship to his people. And so incredibly, Hosea obeys God and goes and marries a prostitute. After a couple of years, she leaves him, returns to a life of prostitution, giving herself away left, right, and center. In the midst of all of that, God tells Hosea to take her back again. And what Peter's doing here is quoting that story to the people of God and telling us that's where we were when God chose us. He didn't choose us because of our beauty. It wasn't because of our moral perfection or purity. God chose us when we were ugly, when we were bent out of shape, when we were deformed, when we were effectively spiritually in prostitution. And just to be clear, we didn't choose him. Our hearts were so twisted, so wicked, so opposed to God, so set against him, we would never, ever, ever have chosen him lest he made the first move to woo us and draw us to himself. But here's the thing. If it was dependent on us, then we would have no confidence, would we? We would never feel completely secure. I mean, every time we mess up, and let's be honest, we all mess up regularly, every time we'd be fearful, wouldn't we, is that God would reject us, which is why I think it's actually phenomenally good news it's nothing to do with our performance. Never has been, never will be. You were not chosen by God because you were more moral or more deserving or more intelligent. Like from the very beginning to the very end, it's all because God set his grace on you. As Peter spells it out in verse 2 here, it's all because God the Father chose you and God the Spirit made you holy. And God the Son cleansed you with his blood, covering all your guilt and shame and replacing it with his pure righteousness. Listen, in a world that is hostile to us because of our faith, in a world where things are always going to be uncertain, where we know what it is to be under attack, we need to remember our secure standing before God. You know, I think we can have this tendency, can't we? We believe that God's with us and God's blessing us when everything's going well, but that when it feels like our world is falling apart, in that moment we can kind of assume that somehow God has abandoned us. But like with the original recipients of Peter's letter... Knowing we are chosen by God 
is of huge confidence, huge comfort to us. Though the culture rejects us, all the time God welcomes us and loves us, regardless of how bad our circumstances appear. And I know that this is incredibly real for you as a church. I know the pain that you've walked through over the last few years. You need to know it doesn't for one moment mean that God is against you or that God in some way has deserted you, regardless of how bad our circumstances appear. Because God has chosen us, we belong to him. And no amount of pain and suffering and confusion could ever separate us from the inheritance he's prepared for us in the city to come, our true home, where we'll no longer be exiles. So we can stand firm in the grace of God, because the God who chooses us is the God who brings about the very salvation he offers. And we can know with absolute assurance that whenever we face suffering, it does not mean that God has forgotten us. I mean, before the creation of the world, God chose us. And if he sent his son to die for us, he's hardly going to let us go now, is he? So that's our identity. We are temporary residents and foreigners. We're exiles, and also we are God's chosen people. Now let's get to work in the time that remains and try and build on that foundation. Let's move on and look at how then we're to live in light of all of that. Well, Peter says that as a result of that, understanding our identity, we should have a compelling character that, again, is defined by two things, purity and beauty. And I believe that is what God is calling Oasis to model in this next season. He wants you as a church to be characterized by purity and by beauty. Let me try and unpack what I mean by that. First of all, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11, dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Let's face it, this is easier said than done, isn't it? Because every day when we wake up, the world is screaming at us, do what your body wants. Do whatever your emotions tell you. Cultivate them, feed them, fuel them, express them, and then enshrine them. Which means that as followers of Jesus, we are literally at war with the gospel of our culture is very much a gospel of self-expression and self-fulfillment, while all the time Jesus is preaching a gospel of self-denial. And so inside of us, it's like we have this constant voice saying, just be you, just be you, just be you, just be you. And all the time Jesus is saying, actually, that is not that great an idea. So how do we resist? How do we overcome the worldly desires that wage war against our souls? How do we pursue purity? Well, I think it all comes back to who we see ourselves to be. Let me give you an example. And just to say, uh, I'm not making any moral judgments here. But I want you to imagine you're a smoker, 
not saying that smoking is good, bad, I'm just neutral about that, but I want you to imagine you're a smoker, and someone comes up and offers you a cigarette. Now, if you say, sorry, uh, I can't because I'm trying to quit, what you're really saying is, I'm a smoker, that's my identity, I'm a smoker who's trying not to, which means really it's down to your willpower in the moment fighting who deep down you know yourself to be. And you don't need me to tell you that sooner or later you're probably going to end up giving in. But if someone comes up to you and you're not a smoker and they offer you a cigarette, what do you say? You say, thanks for the offer, very kind of you. Actually, I'm not a smoker. And that's the end of the conversation. And so if you say, uh, I'm, I'm trying to quit, you're basically saying, I want to, but I can't. And if you say, I don't, it's because that's not what I do. You see, it's way more powerful when you start living out of who you are. And when you take that principle, and you start applying it to all of the contested issues in our culture right now, I think it's a bit of a game changer. Like instead of saying, oh, I'd really like to do that, but I probably shouldn't because I'm trying to follow Jesus. You can actually say, no, I'm chosen by God. I belong to him. This isn't my true home. I'm a saint. That's my true identity. And as far as I can tell, that behavior is completely out of keeping with who I am. Do you understand the difference? Identity shapes behavior way more effectively than mere willpower. And I think that's what Peter is tapping into here. That's what Peter's appealing to when he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Out of our identity, we're to pursue purity. And then Peter goes on to say, be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. You need to understand that if you are serious about following Jesus, then there will be times when you're accused of doing wrong and people will misunderstand what you believe. Which means that to survive, at some point you're going to have to break the fear of man in your life and you're going to have to break the desire to be liked and approved by everyone. Because it's just inevitable. If you get this right, some people are always going to misunderstand and unfairly accuse you. Now look, when that happens, the temptation will always be to either give up and go with the crowd or retreat and hide away. But Peter here is calling us to do something way more radical. He gives us a vision of living such good lives that people are compelled to respond. Dostoevsky, uh, just throw that in to make myself look more intelligent than I really am. Uh, Dostoevsky once said that beauty will save the world. I love that quote. Beauty will save the world. And I think 
that's kind of what Peter's getting at here. We're, we're to live such beautiful lives that people go, look, I don't know how you as a follower of Jesus believe what you believe, but your life is so attractive. Your life is so beautiful to me. You know, I, I think that's how we're called to live in a culture that misunderstands and accuses us. So let's get really practical. How do we do this? How do we live such attractive, such beautiful lives that though the world around us doesn't like us, they pay attention? Well, three quick-fire suggestions gleaned from the example of the church down through all of history, so not just the last 20 years, all of church history, and I'm going to be very, very rapid. Here's the first thing. In a hardened, aggressive culture, the church in history have consistently shown compassion. The early Christians, if you know your history, you'll know they were renowned for their care, for abandoned children, for the elderly, those who are sick, and it's still the same today. Recently heard the story about a church leader who was so moved by the plight of unwanted children in his city that he encouraged his church to get trained as foster parents. And then, sometime later, he went to the child services in their city. He asked how many children were waiting to be fostered. And when he was told the number, he said, our church will take them all. In one act of compassion, they solved that particular need in their city. Now, one step removed from Oasis Church, my observation would be that compassion is one of your hallmarks. But that being said, I think there is a fatigue that can set in when it feels like all you're doing is pouring yourself out for others the whole time. Which is presumably why Paul felt the need to encourage the Galatian church, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So, as you look forward to the next 20 years, I want to encourage you to keep going with this, to keep taking a lead on this, to not grow weary and give up. Because showing compassion is part and parcel of what it means to live such good lives that even those who accuse and oppose us cannot help but take notice. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Church through history have contributed culturally to the flourishing of society. You know, there are so many scientific breakthroughs down through history they're simply down to Christians like Galileo and Isaac Newton and Blaise Pascal, more recently Francis Collins, all of whom believe that God created a discoverable and ordered universe. Christians have also had an incredibly, incredibly high view of the arts and have put so much beautiful creativity out into the world, whether it's Bach or Handel or George Herbert or chance the rapper and even when society just show on current and even when society not just Dostoevsky more rounded than that and even when society has resisted what these people believe they can't help seeing what they've produced and are left saying we hate their beliefs but we cannot deny how good their work is 
Now, once again, I think this is something that you as a church excel at. And I want to stand here and thank you for the way you have modeled this so brilliantly. I know that not only uh, over the road at Church Central, but actually in a whole family of churches across Catalyst, we've been provoked and inspired to follow in your slipstream on this. Really, all I'll say is, over the next 20 years, for the sake of the wider church, please don't play it safe. Don't plateau. Keep pushing the boundaries on this. And then here's the third thing. Church in history, they've sought to model a beautiful life. They've functioned as a conscience in society. They haven't just shown compassion. They have spoken truth to power. For example, back in the 19th century, Christians, they were at the very forefront of social reform here in the UK with the likes of Wilberforce championing the abolition of the slave trade and Shaftesbury pioneering the reform of working conditions. Question is, where are those people today? Where are they? I think... God would want to prompt you as a church to take a step up in this whole area, to not just serve excellently those in need, but increasingly to be a voice for them. In fact, even now, some of you, I believe, are going to feel a stirring in you as I'm speaking. And I'll say, don't dampen it, don't push it down. Don't disqualify yourself. Don't leave it to others. I want to encourage you to seriously ask God to show you what this might look like for you, you individually and you as a church. Because here's the principle. A compelling life leads to a compelling response. It's as simple as that. I mean, isn't that what Peter says in verse 12? He says, they will see your honorable behavior And they'll give honor to God when he judges the world. Now, I could end there. I've already given you lots to think about. I'm going to go a little longer, if that's all right. That's just another few minutes. I want to close this out by just spelling out two clear implications of all of this for your life, your life individually and collectively. One touches on the whole theme of purity. I just want to dwell there a bit longer. And one touched a bit more on the whole area of beauty. I'm going to speak into that one more time. First of all, around this whole area of purity, uh, I know it's a celebration. Uh, I don't want to dampen the atmosphere anymore. I'd like to be invited back again <laughs> sometime. But I do want you to see the war for your soul. The challenge of the world we live in right now is that pretty much everything the Bible says is wrong the world says is your right, which means it's incredibly hard for us to take sin seriously nowadays. But Peter says here that this stuff is a war to destroy you. This is not light language. This is a matter of life and death, and not just for you, but for the church. I tell you, God has got so much more in store for Oasis but secret sin 
has the potential to undermine it all. So I want to appeal to you, won't you pursue purity as an absolute priority? If your life today doesn't look a whole lot different to the people around you, if you're not actively living as a foreigner here, as a citizen of heaven with a completely different set of values, if you're tolerating sin in your heart and you're just justifying it or resigned to never changing, I want to urge you, go to war against the sin in your life. Because if you don't, it will sabotage your relationships, your work, your confidence before God, your witness in the world, and the effectiveness of this church. It will not lead to anything good. So, it's a secret sin in your life. Do the radical thing. Bring it to God. Confess it. Repent of it. Cut it off. Get help from others. If you've tolerated something, you, you know it's wrong, and the Holy Spirit right now is convicting you. I'm calling you to put it to death today before it destroys you. And then secondly, on a slightly more upbeat note, I want to ask you, what has God called you to contribute? What's he called you to contribute? My appeal to you as a church would be where God has given you gifts, where you know that God has put something in you that needs to be expressed, won't you give yourselves to contributing even more to the flourishing of the wider community? Because you know what? This city is aching for people with an alternative vision, a better vision, to push it out of its brokenness and towards redemption and healing. And that's why 20 years ago, God placed you here. And I can't help thinking that what you have got in this room needs to be reproduced in other parts of the city. I mean, if God could do all of this, and we celebrate all of this, if he could do all of this in 20 years from nothing, just imagine what he could do over the next 20 years through all the strength there is in this room right now. Now, please do weigh this, but I believe that there are more oases, if that's the, pl is that the plural? Oasises? Oases, sounds a bit better, doesn't it? I believe there are more oases that need to spring up around Birmingham. Because quite frankly, Birmingham desperately needs more of what you have got. Through all of this, really, my prayer for you is that you will keep living radical lives of purity and beauty that's rooted in your identity as exiles who are chosen by God. That even though this city doesn't understand you, they would thank God that you are here. If you're able to, if you stand, I'd love to pray for you. If you're more comfortable sitting, that's absolutely fine. Please, there's grace to sit. But if you're able to stand, please stand. I'd love to pray.
Father, would you send your spirit on us right now? I'm guessing we haven't got a whole lot of time for, we don't want to rush on and miss your encouragement, your provocation, your challenge, your invitation. Holy Spirit, come to us right now. Help us individually to know how to apply this message, what it looks like for us. And for Oasis as a church, even now, be coming with fresh faith and expectation for this next season. I want to pray that by your Spirit you blow on every gift of compassion, every mercy gift there is in this room. Would you blow on it? Would you enlarge it? Would you increase it? Well, there are people in the room who are weary of doing good because it's hard work. I want to pray for fresh energy from you right now, supernatural energy from you. For all those invested in making this city a better place, it might be in your work, it, it might be in the, the realm of science or the arts, it might be something else. But where you live with that awareness, I, I want to contribute to the flourishing of this city. I want to receive the blessing of God right now, the well done of God. Where you've made tough decisions not to go a, a certain route so that you can do what you're doing right now. Hear the well done of God and keep going and know God's favor. And for those who feel the prompt, and you maybe don't quite know what it looks like, but you feel the prompt to speak truth to power, to contribute to the conscience in this city, this nation. Right now, the Spirit of God is coming to you you're involved in the legal profession, if you're involved in the media, if you're in some way involved in politics, maybe it's through influence you have where you work, you can shape the culture there and change how things are done just in that small environment, that small climate. Receive faith from God right now that your voice not only can be heard, but can shape and bring change. And I want to pray you'd grow the influence of Oasis as a church to speak right into the heart of the city. The corridors of power right into the heart of what happens, shaping policy that this city might benefit. And thank God that you are here. I ask it in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.